Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Last week in our service, we asked for uh, mercy for one of our brothers who was before a judge this week for a crime that he was convicted of, um, and yet in the midst of it was shown mercy. God answered our prayers uh, far beyond what any of us ever hoped to ask for. And uh, like in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, when, the, when an Israelite would um, ask a favor of the Lord, it was customary, they, they would do that by coming up to the temple. This is what we did. We came to the temple of the Lord, and we asked for his favor, and he answered it. But they would also then come back after he had done that, and they would offer another sacrifice of thanksgiving to acknowledge God's answer. They would pay their vows. That's what that means. So we're going to pay our vows this morning. Brian Bailey's going to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for Ben and the Lord's mercy. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that the king's heart is in your hand, and like streams of water, you direct it where you wish. We thank you, Father, for your mercy on Ben. We thank you, Father, for the work of the judge in this case. We thank you, Father, for the witness of your people and of your church. We thank you for how you've cared for Ben and the corrals and the bulls in this. Father, we are amazed at your mercy to us, and we're grateful that our brother can be with us. Father, we pray that you would help them to complete what has to be completed for probation. And we pray, Father, that you would give them what they need for the restitution. But Father, we're grateful for you and your mercies on us as a family and as a church body. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brian. Well, we're in the middle of our Faithful Through All Generations capital campaign, and we're trying to raise money for adding on to our church house. We're focusing our preaching during this time on the topic of money, on giving. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Baker opened up for us the biblical principle that even though God doesn't need our help with anything, he's still pleased to use us as means or as instruments about, uh, for the bringing about of his will in this world. The battle belongs to the Lord, absolutely a biblical principle. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord, and God will make sure to remind you of that. That's what Pastor Bailey was preaching from the, from the story of Gideon. If you, if you think that this all depends on you and your money, if you look around like, like I do and think, well, where's our help going to come from? The Lord is about to remind us that it comes from him. And if you or I think that it comes from us, we might find ourselves sent home like the many thousands who the Lord was not pleased to use to show his power and strength and weakness in the story of Gideon. 
At the end of Pastor Baker's sermon, though, about how God uses means, which is the flip side of that principle of Gideon, um, I asked the question of a congregation, what's God's plan for Bloomington? If we're, if we're to be used by God to accomplish his battles, if he's, then what is, what is the battle and what is his goal here? here? Here we are in Bloomington, what's his goal with us? And I, I uh, was thinking of the verse from Habakkuk 2.14 that says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That's a prophecy of the Bible, something God has said, and God's word is true, absolutely reliable. He says that the, world, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. So what is God's plan and purpose here among us in Bloomington? Well, as Pastor Baker says, it's total world domination. Total Bloomington domination. Total IU domination. Imagine, this, the, imagine IU reorienting itself around the gospel and the proclamation of the word and the upholding of truth the, and the curiosity of God's world. It's just, it would be, it would be miraculous, and, that, but, and yet that's a miracle that God promises to bring about. Now the question is, will we be a part of it? When the, when the history is written about God's conquering and triumph of Bloomington, will this church be a part of it? Will you or I find our name in that book? The, when the story is told in eternity, will your name get a mention? Is my mic causing problems? What do I do? Okay. So just feeding back or what? It's just a, everybody's hovering back there. This church is advancing. God has been blessing us. That's what, that's what we're doing with this campaign. Where it's an acknowledgement of God's blessing and of our desire and commitment to advance with him, to be used of him, to continue to be used so that all the souls of Bloomington are saved. So that all people here confess the name of Christ and belong to his church and join us in serving him. That's the goal. That is what God is doing. Will we be part of it or not? Now, this is Reformation Day. And so this is a, we come to a, a passage of Scripture that's very fitting both for our campaign and for Reformation Day. 2 Samuel chapter 24, the last chapter of Samuel, the last, um, the last episode, the last story in the life of David. And this is about God's choosing of Mount Zion to be the site for his Old Testament temple. This account and the principle that lies at the heart of it make this the logical next step in our progression toward Commitment Sunday. For if God is pleased to use us to accomplish his work, and if we're willing to be used by him as a church, then the next question must be, what is the work God is doing? How would he have us participate in it? Or how much of our lives should we dedicate to that work? Let's read the text together, Second Samuel 24. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, 
Go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Aurora, in the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi, and they came to Danjon and around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre, to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone about through the whole land, They came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. You know what? I'm just going to use this. Is it? Okay. I've heard that before. It's really annoying. is, Is it better now? Okay. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people, and he said, Behold, It is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Arana looked down. And saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him, and Arana went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be held back from the people. Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Arana, 
No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Arana was the Jebusite king until David deposed him when he captured the stronghold of Zion. You might remember how he did that, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, Zion was a, something of an impregnable fortress that Israel had tried to conquer before and had failed. Um, and it was a little, it was a little uh, fortress on, on Mount Zion, which is, just, which is connected to Mount Moriah, where, the, where Arana's threshing floor was. But it's like a little finger um, thing that comes down from that mountain and it has its own little peak, and that's Mount Zion down here on the end. And then the bigger, higher Mount Moriah is up here to the north, just south. And down here on the end of it was Zion, the fortress. Well, David conquered it by sending some of his men in through the water tunnel, though through the water supply to the city, which uh, I, I guess was uh, not thought of before. And it worked. And uh, they snuck into the city and, and took it for David. And David made it his capital city and called it the city of David. Apparently, after capturing the fortress, King David allowed Arana to live on and even to own property in the region. For this threshing floor of Arana's sat on top of Mount Moriah, just outside and to the north of Zion. Years later, under the reign of David's son Solomon, the fortress of Zion would be expanded to encompass Mount Moriah to the north, and 2 Samuel 24 sets the stage for that development. Now, the principal feature of Solomon's expansion of Zion is his building of what? A permanent house for the Lord, the temple, Solomon's temple. That was something that David had wanted to build and was prevented from building by God in the Davidic covenant. God said, no, I'm going to build a house for you, David, but your son after you will build it. This is what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, what the chronicler calls Arana, the Jebusite. And so David, though he was prevented from building the temple that he intended for the Lord, was given this privilege of being involved in the purchase of the land. He's financially invested in this temple and the, the expansion of the kingdom that allowed the temple to live on the high place in the area. And so he does participate with his son in this project. Now let's look at the circumstances that God used to bring this about for David. Verses 1 to 17 tell us of David's sin in using or in issuing a national census and God's severe judgment against it. Now it seems to say in verse 1 that God is to be blamed for David's sin. Do you see that? Verse 1, which says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Well, in the corresponding telling of this story in, in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 21, it says something else. It says that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David 
to number Israel. So which was it? Was it God? Was it Satan? Was it David? Who's to blame for this sin? Well, certainly it isn't God. It isn't God. For none of us is to say, as James tells us, when we are tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. That leaves Satan and David, either one of which makes sense, as they're both sinful creatures. But how do you make sense of verse 1 of this chapter, which seems to attribute David's sin to God? Well, here's the solution. David, who is constantly conspiring against the Lord's people in order to destroy them if he can, comes before the Lord like he did with Job and asks for the Lord's permission to sift David like wheat and to see if he can lead him astray and capture his soul and destroy the Lord's anointed. And the Lord, who has occasion to be angry with Israel and sought opportunity to discipline them as a father disciplines his children, allowed Satan to tempt David and lead him into sin so that the Lord could, bring a, to, could apply his discipline to their need, to their sin, to their life. And as Hebrews tells us, this is because God disciplines those whom he loves. We've seen this at work before in uh, Sunday school last week. We dealt with a passage of Scripture where David... Um, was confessing his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. You know that account? And David confessed his sin, and the Lord forgave him. But it goes on to say, however. So David said, I've sinned. And, and immediately the message is, and you're forgiven. The Lord has washed your sins away. From The prophet says this. However, because you have given occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme, the child who is born to you, the child of your sinful union with Bathsheba, it's going to die. So there are consequences to sin, even when they're forgiven. We can be completely forgiven of our sins, and yet there will be consequences for those sins in our life. Now, what are those consequences for? This is what I pointed out last week in Sunday school. Those consequences are not God exacting punishment for our sin. They're not him getting his pound of flesh. We've offended him, and so he takes it out on us. That's not the kind of father that we have in God. God disciplines those he loves for their good so that they will share his holiness. The purpose of God's discipline, both in chapter 12 and in chapter 24, that he brings about on David, was for David's good so that he would share his holiness. It was for David's future peace, for David's future joy, so that David would be preserved unto eternal life. God is the physician. He knows what we need. He prescribes the dose that we need to get better. And his discipline is one of his chief instruments for bringing about our salvation. So don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that we don't know exactly what made this census displeasing to the Lord. Censuses are not inherently evil. God himself had issued one or commanded one to be taken. Um, in Numbers chapter 1, the Lord said to Moses, in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month in the second year that they had come out of the land of Egypt. This is Numbers 1.1. He said this, 
Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Now this census of David's seems very similar to the one that God commanded to be taken in Numbers. It seems to focus, like that one did, on the, the men of fighting age, a numbering of the armies. But nonetheless, David's was sinful, and, and we don't know exactly why. It could be that David was counting in his army in order to boast in his own strength, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, walking on the balcony and saying, look, look what I have done. I am the greatest thing in the world, and God humbles him. Maybe that this is David boasting in his strength, taking, uh, being proud in his heart, and the Lord humbling him. Maybe it's... Uh, uh, Maybe his sin was in the fact that God had not commanded him to do this, like he had commanded Moses explicitly to take the census. Maybe it was needless. Maybe it was that David failed to collect the half-shekel um, tax that was for um, the ransom of the, of the armies of each man. Maybe it was that he did take the tax, and that it, the whole thing was needless in an attempt to fill his treasury. It's, it's impossible to say, because Scripture simply does not make it conclusive for us. Nonetheless, we know for a fact that David sinned, and he sinned in a very serious way in this because of the nature of the discipline that's brought about. You know that David has fallen into serious sin whenever Joab, who's a far less spiritual man than him, is more in tune with the Lord's will than David. So that happens a couple of times in David's life where Joab comes to him and David's in serious sin and it's like senseless, like a senseless beast about himself. And, and Joab comes to him and, and slaps him around. This time, though, David wins against him, and Joab goes and takes the census. Now, it's good to see that David has a conscience. His conscience is not seared with a branding iron, as some men have. We're told that David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people, verse 10. His conscience smote him. That's what you want your conscience to do. You want it to smack you around. And you're in the midst of sin. You've fallen into sin. You want your conscience to help you. And so we should work hard to encourage our conscience with God's word. By reading God's word, that, that helps strengthen our conscience as we remember God's commands. Um, when we meditate on his precepts. David confessed that this census was foolish sin. And he asked God to forgive him. Now, did God forgive David? Absolutely he did. If we confess our sins, God promises he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet, the judgment came upon him and upon Israel through him for David's good so that his soul would be saved in the day of judgment. Now, God let David choose the instrument of his judgment. Isn't that interesting? And it's very sweet to see David's response. It's full of faith. Gad came to David and told him, this is verse 13, and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, pursue you or shall there be three days pestilence in the land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. What was David's answer? Though he was very troubled, very troubled, this was heavy news, 
Nonetheless, he said, Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of men. So there's one of these options that David sees as worse than the others, and that's the one that has a mediating agent in between him and God. There's some, some possibility, perhaps, that they would go beyond God's judgment. And so, as, a, as an act of faith, God's looking at the options, they're all bad, David says to the Lord, I'll take whatever you give me directly. I want it from your hand. I want it from my father's hand, not from another man. So then the plague hits. It's a very severe plague. 70,000 die throughout the land of, e- of, of Israel. And then the angel, in verse 16, stretches his hand out towards Jerusalem to destroy it. And the Lord relents from the calamity. He says, hold it, pause. We're going to pause right here. The Lord had in all of this, he intended to bless David. God is so good. His mercy is so abundant that he will turn our sins into a means of blessing us incredibly. This is a huge advance of religion in Israel that's about to take place here. The kingdom is about to expand and Jerusalem is about to be established as the the seat of God's presence and and a house is soon to be built that will be a house of prayer for all the nations. The mercy of God is so abundant that he will turn our sins into a means of blessing not only us, but many others if we are repentant, if we're humble. David cried out to the Lord when he saw the angel, Spare this people. It's me. It's me. Take it out on me. Remember, it's just like what happened with David earlier with the episode of Bathsheba and Uriah. When the judgment came, it didn't fall on David directly, personally, but on his children, on his wives. And that touched David. It was more painful that way. And it didn't Israel no good for God to destroy their king, who he had lifted up, for the purpose of for, for typifying his Messiah who was to come. And yet David had to be humbled, and, and God touched him in both cases with his family and now with his flock. Oh, Lord, let it be me, David says. And, and God hears that prayer of David's, and he responds by providing a solution. Verse 18 Gad came to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Now, this is no arbitrary choice. Mount Moriah was close, first of all. And so something of a necessary mercy. This was not at that time where one would go to appeal to the Lord by way of sacrifice. That, the tabernacle of Moses was in Gibeah. 20 miles to the north. That's what this account in Chronicles tells us at the end. David did this. God allowed for this because the tabernacle was too far away. The, the plague could, could not go on. David, so God paused it and said, David, come out here just, just to the north of the city, out on the threshing floor, and offer sacrifices there, and I will stop the plague. 
So it was something of a mercy. Secondly, Mount Moriah already had a strong spiritual significance for Israel. Do you remember this? Abraham, a thousand years before, had been commanded to offer up his son Isaac on an altar on this mountain. And just like in this account, which, which uh, this offering was offered on the third day of the plague, it was on the third day of Abraham's journey that he saw Mount Moriah and ascended it to, in, with the intent of killing his son in obedience to the Lord. So that's absolutely not arbitrary in that regard either. This, this spot already had been marked by sacrifice as a place a thousand years later, God would bring his people back and would be conquered as a sort of a final symbol of his faithfulness to his promises. Remember, so Zion was captured with just a little thing down here on the tip of a peninsula. And, and there's a whole lot more region up here that still belongs to a Jebusite. And symbolic of God's promise to give Abraham the land, he gives David that land and marks that event with a sacrifice. Thirdly, the exact spot on Moriah was Arana's threshing floor. And the threshing floor is very important in Scripture. It's a place of judgment. What is a threshing floor? Well, it's like a uh, flattened surface, uh, usually circular and often paved with stone, that uh, is used for threshing grain, which is the removing of the seeds from the stalk. And the way it's removed is by threshing, which is stomping underfoot the grain until it knocks off the chaff. And then, and a threshing floor is usually in some sort of elevated and open area outside of town so that there's, it's windy. And then the, the winnowers come and they pick up the, the chaff, the, the stalks, and they throw them up in the air, and the wind blows them away. And you can write off, if you know God's word, Psalm 1, which we sing, has this imagery which is used to express God's judgment against the wicked. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. And there's this idea of separation, the righteous and from the wicked. A threshing floor is a place of judgment. And so it's also, of course, a place of blessing because this is where you come to take in the harvest and to receive from the Lord his, his goodness to you that year and to re, which, from which you receive sustenance and life. Here at a threshing floor, justice and mercy meet. We see God's judgment against sin. We see God's mercy to David. We see him accepting a substitute sacrifice in place of David and pouring out his wrath on that sacrifice rather than David. It says that in Chronicles that the fire of the Lord came and burned up the offering. David didn't even have to bring a match. The Lord in his power, sent the fire, and it consumed the offering. This further confirmed that this was the site of the new temple, because that is what had happened when the tabernacle was first constructed. So it was fitting that the Lord chose this spot for David to offer up sacrifices that brought an end to the plague, and fitting also that Solomon built the temple there. It's full of symbolism and meaning. We'll get back to this later. The second part of this chapter starts in verse 18 to the end, 
we read of David offering to buy the threshing floor from Arana. Arana's generous counteroffer to donate it all to David for his use, and finally David's principled refusal. Now, Arana was fully aware of the seriousness of this situation. He had no doubt heard reports of the devastation that had been brought throughout the land, 70,000 people. That doesn't go unnoticed. Also, he and his sons, it says in Chronicles 21, had seen the angel. His sons had run for cover. They were frightened for their lives, along with all Israel. And so Arana, when David makes his intentions known for this threshing floor, willingly offers it up to be used for that purpose, trusting that God will answer the prayer. But David refused to accept his offer, and he did so on principle. What was his principle? I will not offer the Lord burnt offerings, which cost me nothing. David's not just being polite in refusing this generous offer. He's, he understood something we're very much in danger of forgetting today in Entitlement America. It's wrong to take. It's wrong to take. It's wrong to steal. Why would this be stealing? Generously offered. Well, to understand why it would be stealing, you have to enter into the meaning of sacrifice in the Old Testament. A sacrifice was a representative of one's entire self, one's person. It was a substitute for you. And so it was to reflect you in every sense, and it can't be somebody else's belonging to be you. For, for the symbolism to be complete, it, you need to own it. It needs to cost you something. Otherwise, it's no good. More importantly, though, than the moral obligation to pay for things that you break... Pay for, you, you break it, you buy it. More importantly than that, David understood this nature of true sacrifice. For David, religion that cost nothing was worse than nothing. It was an offense to God. It is certain that God would not have accepted David's offering had, they, had it been paid for by somebody other than himself. This was a substitute for David. It had stood in for him, and it needed to belong to him. So David is not just mechanically, though, he, it's not just a principle that he got taught in his youth. It's, in fact, I've not seen this principle established in Scripture at this point. It's almost as if David is prophetically understanding something in this moment and the significance that has not been explicitly taught before. And we see, so we see something of his heart in this. It's not just sort of a principle that he knows from the law that he's putting into practice mechanically. Oh, I can't offer that because it doesn't belong to me. No, we see his heart. We see his love for the Lord. We see his complete surrendering of himself in humility to God. Now, in order to to, to make proper use of this text, we need to remember that all of this that God did through David speaks prophetically to us of greater things to come. There were greater things symbolized in these actions, in these sacrifices, in this place, 
than, than, than the things themselves. They were types of something greater that was coming. Let's start with the expansion of Zion that is, is started here. David purchases more land that then Zion expands into. Well, we just read the account of how the fortress of Zion was first expanded to include Mount Moriah, and, and this set the stage for Solomon to come and build a temple after him. What would that temple mean for Israel? The presence of this temple which housed the Ark of the Covenant containing the Ten Commandments and which facilitated the sacrificial system made Zion the most important city in the world. Once Zion is expanded to include the temple, listen, its scriptural significance can't be exaggerated. Here's what the psalmist says about it. Zion is called, in Psalm 48, the joy of the whole earth, the city of the great king. It is called God's holy mountain in Psalm 2. It is a hill that God loves, Psalm 78. It is the place where he dwells, Psalm 9. It's the perfection of beauty from which God's glory shines forth, Psalm 50. Zion is where God is great, Psalm 99, where he has appeared in his glory. God is said to have chosen her and desired her for his habitation. Out of Zion, the salvation of Israel comes, Psalm 14. There, God says he will arise and show his compassion, Psalm 102. So Zion, and specifically the temple, where is, was where God dwelt on earth. This was the symbol of his presence. This is where you could come to petition him, to be made right with him by way of sacrifice. This is where he promised to forgive sins, to show compassion. This is where he instructed his saints in the way of salvation and true worship. And so the events of 2 Samuel 24 are incredibly important for the progress of religion in Israel. This is a huge step forward, a permanent place where God will dwell and make his name known and where men can come to him. Now here we are in the middle of faithful through all generations capital campaign. And it's tempting for us to want to equate what David says in 2 Samuel 24 with what we're doing in this campaign in a sort of one-for-one way. I will not offer to the Lord that which doesn't cost me something, that's something that's not painful to me. And it's a good rule of thumb. It's not bad, I'm not knocking it, but there's something more to be received here. There's an important difference between what David is doing and what we are doing. The temple that David is building and the temple that we are building with God's help. What is that difference? Well, David was building a temple made of dead stones quarried from a quarry. And what are we building? We're building the real deal. We're building the true house of the Lord. We're building a temple that is made of living stones, living souls that are quarried from Bloomington and wherever we hail from and being chiseled and honed and put together into a glorious house of God by the Spirit. And it's every bit as glorious, if not far more glorious, than than the house that Solomon built, which was a wonder of the world. Now, we look around our, at, our, at each other, and I know I'm ugly. I'm uglier in my heart, even. 
and yet we do not know what we shall be. That's what 1 John says. We do not yet know what we shall be. When Christ returns, when he makes all things right, when he reveals all the secrets, when he pulls back the veil from all of our eyes, when he makes us immortal, which he promises to do, we will be glorious. Far more glorious than this temple that Solomon built. We're building the real deal. It's, and it's going to last. Solomon's temple didn't last. The temple of the after that didn't last. And the temple after that didn't last. This temple will last. But it's made up not of brick and mortar. That's not what we're doing in the Faithful Through All Generations Capital Campaign. It's, it's about that picture out on the screens of the children. We're building a house for the Lord, a place for his name to dwell on earth. What is this building then, this building project that we're engaging? What is it, this brick-and-mortar building, I mean? Well, it's a tool. It's just a tool. It's a tool that God has been pleased to, to bless us with, this tool. We've been using it. We've been using it up. And as the house, the real house expands, we need a bigger, better, more powerful tool in our belt. And tools cost money, and so we've got to put our money together so we can go out and buy ourselves a bigger tool. That's all this campaign is about, except that it's about the advance of the true house of God. And like I said, look, that, that, there's something that has amazing has happened between the time that the Solomon's temple was built and us here today. How did, what happened? Well, basically what happened is what Jesus said would happen to the woman at the well. She asked, which mountain? Our mountain, the Samaritans, or is it your mountain where God is to be sought? And Jesus answered, of course, well, it's our mountain. It's not your mountain. Salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus was prophesying about the day when his spirit would be poured out, when the old ceremonies of the, of the tabernacle and the temple would be done away with and replaced by the church and her worship. The true temple would emerge. I don't know where I was going with that. I just forgot. Oh, what I said at the beginning. That happened. That spirit was poured out. And the gospel has come to us. That means the temple has come. Zion has expanded to Bloomington, to us. And it intends to expand all around Bloomington, to encompass it, to own it, to define it. And will Clearnote Church be a part of that work or not? That's the essential question.
before us. It's not, it's not uh, oh, I got a, you know, they're asking me to pull out my wallet and do something I did just a few years ago, I thought. <laughs> no, this is an exciting opportunity to respond grace, uh, gratefully to the Lord's work. A couple more things and then we'll be done. What of, what of David's sacrifices that he offered? Well, these, of course, also point to something greater than themselves. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. That's what all the sacrifices of the Old Testament symbolized. The, the atonement, the substitutionary atonement, and the satisfaction that they made for our sins. How was it that David could so easily part with his money? Why didn't he take Arana's offer? This is a very important question for us. I think it makes all the difference for whether we'll give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. How could David... Tempted opportunity to cheat. Why did David not take the opportunity? David was a living sacrifice. What does that mean? You know we're all commanded to be living sacrifices in Romans. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service of worship. Why? What's significant about being a living sacrifice? Well, it's different than being a dead one. That's the whole point. God provided a a sacrifice instead of David, a substitute for David, something to stand in for him. It was his sin. He deserved the punishment. He deserved the death that was coming. So did Israel. They were sinners like you and me. They deserved to die. And God miraculously provided a substitute in the same place he had done so for Abraham. David responded joyfully. He was a living sacrifice. God had spared him. And so this, his money was nothing to that. It was nothing compared to avoiding the plague that God had sent. Here's what I would say about your contribution. We're all gearing up to make our contribution to the Lord for the building of this brick-and-mortar building. It needs to be reflective of a total surrendering of your life to God. It needs to be representative of a life that's lived as a living sacrifice, a life that's lived cheerfully surrendering yourself, your possessions, realizing that everything that you have is like what, Robins, what Chesterton says about Robinson Crusoe. Everything in your life has been saved from a wreck. You know, Robinson Crusoe on the, on the island, it's like, wow, this knife that I have in my hand. It's a miracle that I have this knife. Chesterton says the, the benefit of reading stories like this is now that you go home and you, you read it and then you go and you slice your bread to make your toast, you think, 
huh, a knife. It's a miracle. I don't deserve a knife. We're all Robinson Crusoes. We've been saved from a wreck. Everything you have, every dollar in your pocket, is a mercy that you don't deserve. It's a gift to you from the Lord. And it's an easy thing to return to the Lord, something that you acknowledge is coming from him and rejoice in as a good gift from your Father. That's nothing. So we need to examine our hearts. How we give in this capital campaign is a reflection of our faith. Yeah, everybody knows that. We all say that. But I mean, your justification by faith alone faith. (laughs) It's... It is an expression of your understanding of the gospel, of how the degree to which you rejoice in the Lord and want to see his work abound. When they tell the story about Bloomington, will you be in it? Will your faith make a contribution to his work here? Will mine, will Clearnote Church be a part of the history books? Listen to this verse from Revelation with which we'll close. Behold, says the Lord, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, To render to every man according to what he has done. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And all God's people said, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do we rejoice in his coming? How we give is a reflection of whether we do. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story in your word and what it says to us and how it explains to us the significance of your work here on earth and in our town and among us. I pray, Lord, that we would make spiritual sacrifices and that our money would not be disconnected from that, but very much a part of our offering ourselves in our bodies to your service. Help us to abound in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus so that we will be cheerful givers, that we will respond to the, the great mercy you've shown us in saving our souls and that the things of this world would be held lightly in our hands and would just be simple things and amazing to us that you would lower yourself to use them Help us to hold them lightly and to to come full of faith on Commitment Sunday. Ready to offer you something that costs us something. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.